This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, for our News Roundup episode, we discuss the rising incidents of hate crimes, labor unrest in China, the DNC's contempt for their base, and answer questions sent in from one of our listeners. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa. Joining me tonight is Donald. Hey, it's Donald from also from Communist League of Tampa. Patrick. Patrick from Red Party. Lexi. Lexi from Red Party, scared of the Goy again. <laughs> and Grant. Grant, uh, third from Red Party here. Okay, so tonight uh, we're going to run through a few news items and uh, get you guys' takes on it. Uh, so I guess first thing, and this is pretty depressing, but there was actually a mosque bombing in Tampa very recently, and they ruled it arson, like, right away. And I guess this comes also in the midst of this kind of wave of, like, anti-Semitic threats and graffiti and different things going on right now. So I wonder if any of you had any thoughts on that. There, d- there does seem to be a general uptick in, you know, emboldened hate crime, for lack of better terms, um, that... I don't know. I was a bit skeptical that the dragon would be quite so unleashed by a Trump election, and I'm kind of eating my words a bit right now. Um, I, you know, there was also a plot to bomb a mosque in Kansas, and I don't know. I, I recall there being others. I'll have to look them up. And yeah, also the anti-Semitic stuff. That's that's. Uh, <laughs> There hasn't quite been a, a wave like that since uh, it's been a while in the United States. It's actually very strange. Well, one thing that's kind of about I wonder about with like the Tampa thing is they haven't seemed to identify any uh, any perpetrators or whatever at this point. But I kind of wonder if it was almost something like because there are mosques everywhere, and I don't know if it's just complete like idiotic, just revanchist, like get mosques out of here, it's bad. Or if, like maybe it's like a kind of I wonder if it was almost like a PizzaGate situation where they thought like oh there's this is a cell of this thing here and that's why we have to like blow it up or whatever. This kind of stuff always just raises a lot of questions for me. Um, yeah, it's it's, it's weird because it's in our own town, so we have no idea. You know, it's it's we don't know how we don't really know much about the far right in our town, so it could have been just a random person, or it could be like an organized underground far right cell or something in Tampa because. I mean, who knows at this point? Yeah, there, there really hasn't been anything that's come forward, which makes it a little unsettling. Um, at the same time, there don't seem to be any follow-ups to it. Like, it doesn't seem to be spreading. Like, it was just kind of, it's almost like a freak occurrence, and it's tough to its tough to know what to make of it. Yeah, it might have been like a lone wolf terrorist attack or whatever. Excuse, like, the language, excuse, like, the terminology. Yeah, because okay, but- I, I know people call it terrorism, but I wonder, I mean, it is... You know, it is property destruction, isn't it? I mean, does that technically make it terrorism? I mean, well, yeah, it's terrorism because it's the purpose is to imbue terror in the civilian population. So I think it falls yeah. under terrorism. Like you know, and it's reactionary terrorism. Like, yeah, it's reactionary propaganda. The deed. 
Yeah. It's it's interesting to use that term in a in a sort of politically neutral way when it's been weaponized against uh, Muslims themselves so much. But it, it certainly is terrorism uh, in a yeah. classical sense of the word. Yeah, lone wolf, like the specific moniker of lone wolf terrorism has been like used to describe mostly white supremacist terrorism. And it has been actually incorporated into their tactics for a long period of time. Like when you like from like the 80s onwards it's been like they've been avoiding like making centralized organizations for the most part favoring like small terrorist cells and lone wolf terrorists in order to avoid government rep uh to avoid like the government and that sort of thing yeah that was like the time of the turner diaries when that was popular that was kind of the there was a shift in the far right from kind of organizing like a, a national socialist party or something like that in the u.s into just kind of basically national anarchism like there's been this tend towards kind of decentralized like lone wolf type stuff like decentralized communities like by local kind of localism in the in the far right it's, it's yeah. very it's very weird but yeah, yeah they, must it, have, they must have read Theory Communist, you know what I mean? They're anti-programmatists. It's Glenn Beck got them all onto coming insurrection, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. And that was all, like, um, the whole, t that tendency was tied into, like, the militia movement in the 90s. Okay, that's yeah. actually real history, yeah. Yeah, the militia, the whole idea of the militia, too, of having, like, a, of a militia outside the state is kind of a proletarian working class idea. And so it just shows how, like, fascism, it kind of steals, like, organization from the proletariat and uses it to its own ends. Like, it tries to mimic proletarian forms of organization, but imbues it with a reactionary content, if that makes sense. Yeah, but okay, could militias, militias proper are often, um, like, associated with the state and with, like, a more reactionary sense of national defense. And if you read Marx carefully on the militia question, he says where there are no militias form proletarian militias where there are militias aligned with the state in the classical sense form pr the proletarian guard like a counter militia and that's really the probably our task considering a lot of us don't know how to shoot i know the the clt folks do know how to shoot and thank god but um <laughs> not 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 really we don't really i mean you know we play video games and we're, we're working at it, but you know we're a ways off. Jesus Christ, haters, you're killing me. Yeah. We're we're a ways yeah. off from becoming uh, capable of waging the protracted people's war in the countryside of Florida in the swamp. <laughs> Someone needs to write like a fanfic about that. What? So, what exactly were the anti-Semitic threats in um, that you were talking about, Lexi? So, uh, there's a lot of bomb threats, basically. And there was also like Nazi graffiti at like Jewish cemeteries and that kind of thing, which actually Trump mentioned at the beginning of his recent address to Congress. And he brought it up alongside like, you know, praising Black History Month. And what? Uh, yeah, I, did, did no one see this? I mean, I, I hope we're going to do a. Yeah, Trump, Trump made address. comments like earlier last week about like Black, like a Black History Museum. Um, uh, african-american museum and how anti-semitism along with other forms of like racism and that sort of thing is bad like he made a comment along those lines he was i think he was giving it 
the speech at like some kind of museum. Oh dedicated yeah, to- I mean he's on the defensive. It's just like when he was pretending to be the uh, LGBTQ uh, yeah right. advocate, like you know. He he, yeah. he realizes that he gets shit for you know being a racist piece of shit. So occasionally yeah. he, he does some and the funny stuff to you know kind of he'll, he'll throw people a bone. Yeah, exactly. He yeah. throws people. And bone. the fu- the funny thing about it was immediate, like sort of after those comments, he basically like claimed that like um the fucking is like the anti like the cemetery stuff was actually a false flag. The false flag thing, yeah. Bring that up. Whoa. How is that a false flag, though? Because, like, it, government operatives were doing that? Like, what? Well, more that, like, more that I think Trump is trying to create this this plausibility among some of, some of his base to think, oh, well, this is just left sort of rabble-rousers making Trump look bad kind of thing. Oh, oh yeah, that's oh. a common narrative. I've even seen leftists say this, that basically, like, the spike in hate crimes and all the hate crimes that have been happening are just like this kind of myth and that really there's no problem at all and kind of the liberal media is just like conjuring this to make everyone more scared of Trump when really there's nothing to be scared of. And, you know, there's like a, a grain of salt in there that's true, but it's just, it's obviously like a real thing that's happening and you're just in denial about it. It know? certainly is being weaponized for their own purposes by the liberal media, but it's happening. Yeah, exactly. But they're trying to say no, it's a, it's it's a false flag, or it's being um, inflated, and really, like this is always happens and always has, and this is nothing new, and has nothing to do with Trump or anything. Yeah, politics. Basically, the entirety of American politics is devolving into like conspiracy mongering, like all across the spectrum. It makes me feel better, to be honest. Yeah, we're the we're definitely <laughs> the sane ones. There's no way that we're not the sane ones at this point. Well, at yeah, least we're not it's crazy. Here. It's like yeah. I don't know. With all the yeah, every side is like basically becoming full conspiracy theorists. But all of a sudden, like the communists are like the only ones who are able to talk about politics rationally, <laughs> which is not what people are used to. So maybe this is our time to shine. I guess I don't know. God knows. I mean, there's probably some you know reactionaries that are weird you know goatee sporting mirror images that can also have hold a rational discussion about it if we weren't busy bayonetting them in the stomach sure but i think people are really looking for people are looking for an alternative to trump and then when they look at the democrats and hear the russia bullshit and all of that then we do sound uh understandably sober in comparison Mm. I mean, that stuff is nuts. Yeah. I mean, you would think that, but a lot of the American public is willing to buy into conspiracy theories and that sort of thing. Like, it's been proven. Well, well yeah. I, was, I mean, I was pretty much everyone to... believes in, like, JFK conspiracies. Like, <laughs> Well, I was referring more to just the fact that we're kind of not completely losing our shit. Like the way that some, a lot of, see, I see a lot of people just completely losing their minds one way or another. Like they think like Trump being president is going to be like the fulfillment of like every one of like their revonkish fantasies. And on the other hand, you have people who, you know, it's like their ultimate nightmare. And, you know, the United States is being taken over by the, by Russia. And, you know, it's going to be 1984. You know, like it, it, it's it, people, people just they're they're not thinking straight. Like they're not thinking clearly about this. 
Like, they're not looking at it. I mean, some are. There definitely are. There's some good people out there doing Lord's work trying to situate this within, like, a larger historical context and to point out, like, the continuities that exist between administrations. But there's some other people that are just... And I understand the sense of panic because, you know, there's there's not, like, a clear alternative to, like, the current way of doing things. But uh, I want to segue here into what might be a recurring segment. Who's running for president this week? Uh, so this is... Yeah, so this is uh, one of those things that, like, existed entirely in the press. Like, there was no actual, like, material or real basis for this. It was just kind of, like, people in the press floating this out as an idea. Like, last week we had Al Franken and uh, Clinton again. Um, this week, Oprah. Oprah. Holy shit, are Oprah. you kidding? Think- Oprah? That's in, what, now, but here's, Oh, God. Around, right? She's, like, the left, like, she's... Yeah. Like- liberal trump like oh god it's so that yeah but think about it that's what actually makes it good like this actually of all the ones i've heard floated out so far i've heard people floating tim kane i've heard people floating hillary i I mean this one actually could work oh i I mean as far as the democrats go like she probably is their best shot like yeah she's probably their best their best president in like that in like a very long time (laughs) <laughs> but like yeah I yeah mean, and like the slogan writes itself president. like you know like you you get some health care you get some health care you get some health care like it all like it all <laughs> yeah, fits. It, it makes so much sense because like i don't know if trump can be president why can't oprah be president like yeah exactly like, and she 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 knows the media game even better than he does like he's yeah. a media figure but she's like in the media stratosphere like yeah. she's got her own network God. she's got what do you guys think of this Zuckerberg talk? It was a few weeks ago now, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's dumb. That's not going to work. No one's going to vote for him. His employees might vote for him, like if they think he might be monitoring their votes, but that's about it. He's that, no one's going to vote for that. Dude. He's, he's so boring. He's a lizard he candidate. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't know how to make. He doesn't know how eye contact works. Like you, if I you're going to like run for president, you need to know how eye contact works. I mean, if if the dude like. If he just like bought his way into the primary, I mean, he and just like paid a bunch of people to make him charismatic, like yeah. If he if he just used his power of Facebook to like interrupt everybody's Facebooking thing and like you know to click you know you know to click something that would you know you had to like watch his ads before you could use Facebook. Yeah, then he might be able to get his message out. You can know, we sort of like can how, we like, splice in Jeb Bush saying uh, "Eat your heart out, Zuckerberg" right here, something like that? Yeah, eat your heart out, Zuckerberg. Yeah, it's to be, you know, like the modern day, like social media version of like Ross Perot, where like Ross Perot bought time on TV to like explicate like his weird theories about government. You know, he, he, he could maybe do the same thing. Yeah. But that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's the only play that that just, has. But, just yeah. really poorly done par- pie charts. Just fucking, that's going to be amazing. Yeah. That has no social yeah. basis to work. That's the thing. Right. Oprah Classical does Marx Like Oprah, Oprah could totally work. So that's that. Okay, uh, imagine imagine a primary Oprah versus Kanye West. That's going to oh be shit. a beautiful experience. <laughs> that would be interesting. Or or Kanye West runs as a Republican and Oprah runs as a Democrat. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's what, what I'm thinking. I'm telling you, I really feel that. I, like, I where, think. Who's, where's he get? What coalition of the Republican Party could he possibly carve out though? Kanye West. I I, I don't know. Does he really yeah. mean to carve yeah, exactly. out a coalition? Yeah, what like, about Trump? Oh, what, what, what coalition? Trump, they, they just yeah, fucking race, follow orders. People. They have a program. The Republicans have centralism. Yeah. I mean, uh, but at the same time, Trump did unite the right, basically. 
Like, oh yeah, big time. Like they're all kissing. Even like the even those the National Review people who you know put up a whole issue telling how evil he was. They've all they're all kissing the ring now. Like they're, they they yeah. they know where their bread's buttered. Yeah, but know? he just dominated them. It's not like he was suave. Yeah, yeah, yeah but I, I mean, think he tapped into an an anti political sentiment that Kanye couldn't just by. I, I don't think he's Kanye. The same sort of anti politics. Let's move forward. I'd vote for him, though. I would. <laughs> Class Kanye. traitor. Kanye West. Yeah, I would. Forget it. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Life of Pablo wasn't that good. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't listened on... to it yet. I haven't yeah, watched Oprah uh, in years. Yeah. I mean, she has, she's, she's been on the air for years. I mean, she, I guess she has, like, her network now, but I don't think she, she actually has daytime TV anymore. But anyway, was uh, there anyone... Oh, God, that's maybe... That just made me think. I, like, I just want to have that lesser evil conversation about Kanye, oh. Oprah, Trump, everybody. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know what the worst thing would be in the world ever, though, even worse than Trump. Like if, if like Doctor Phil ran for president. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, could you imagine the insufferability levels of that? Trick. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I'm sure. I'm sure someone's gonna. I'm sure someone like is gonna float that. Like probably in the next six months. Please cut in some Doctor Phil right here. Yeah. Please, please cut yeah. in some Doctor. He's gonna save the American family. Yeah, he's Something gonna save the <laughs> Anyway, okay. So uh, China. China. Moving on to China. 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 So there's a report that came out recently about like labor unrest. According to the Financial Times, the 22,663 strikes and protests recorded in 2016 by China Labor Bulletin actually marked a fall on the on the previous year. The total was still about double that of 2014, with the spread to new sectors partly offset, offsetting a drop in uh, manufacturing unrest. Uh, in, incidents of industrial action doubled for retail workers, uh, grew by a quarter in transport, and a fifth in the services sector. Uh, for the first time, their combined total exceeded manufacturing incidents, which fell by almost a third in construction is still responsible for the largest share incidents only rose by eight percent um but i just thought this was really interesting um because you know like there's a whole sort of world of class struggle kind of going on internally within chinese society uh and you know, within chinese capitalism and adjusting to like the shifts in the chinese economy overall and i just thought you know what you know like what role could this play in the sort of international class struggle going forward and if anybody had any thoughts on that um I think it's interesting how what you have in China is a place where we don't have political freedom, where workers can't organize their own political associations independently from the party, and they can't organize their own trade unions independently from the state, but they still do a, a lot to fight against the conditions they have for kind of economistic wildcat strikes. and. What happens is that the party does kind of grant them the demands they ask for, but they have to wrestle it from the party through these kind of wildcat strikes. And I think the question is, going from that point to actual formal organization that's independent from the state, but that would require winning political freedom. And so it's, it's a very complicated situation in China because there needs to be independent unions, but they, they're not really allowed to form independent unions, so they informally do it. And so it's kind of like this informal network of workers, you know, doing wildcat strikes, but it's, it's impeded by that informality, I think, rather than, I don't know, rather than that being like this awesome thing that's ultra-left and great. 
Hmm. Right. Yeah. Because the idea of like completely like a series of like mass strikes or trade or wildcat strikes independent of the control of like the trade union bureaucracy, you know, I'm sure it's like the wet dream to a lot of leftists. Well, well and that independence who... from the trade union bureaucracy, I think, you know, thinking about people think about that in such an American context, too. This is so different than that. Right. I've been curious about reading a, it's like called Shuang. I don't know. It's like a communizer look at China. Yeah, I've heard of it. Um, I'm curious. Some of us have read it. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious about that. Like, okay, because a a lot of yeah, a lot of the ultra left kind of way of looking at this would be this autonomist kind of glorification of you know I don't know essentially making virtue a necessity. Which, if you look at the problems of Leninism, you know we have a lot of making virtue of necessities and of Bolshevization, and you also have that with. <laughs> like the neoliberal period and the shift to automatism, or, you know, autonomism and like anti-state stuff because because we can't organize anything. Yeah, I, I completely agree because basically what has happened is because of the atomization and because of the depoliticization of society, people have turned to kind of these autonomous individualistic forms of resistance and what the kind of a lot of these communizer types do and autonomous types do is they kind of fetishize that form of resistance as being more pure and more um, direct. It's unmediated. It's not controlled by any party or state authority. So they see that as the ultimate form of struggle rather than more than rather than political organizing and stuff. Well, then we we've, and we've seen the results of that being the the activist cliques domination of politics on the left yeah i'm still thinking about this within the chinese example like what could the chinese workers be doing otherwise because let's be honest the level of class struggle in china is probably the ragingest most militant class struggle going on in the world like in even in the classical proletarian sense even though it's against a so-called communist state i like the soviet union had no tendency towards this type of of militant sustained expanding class struggle well and what's interesting too is that like it seems to be spreading like outside of like the classical you know centers of train union struggle like the factories and like the high concentrated firms like it sounds like it's also occurring in you know you know retail and in like sales sections which you know have been historically in the united states very difficult to organize um, but those seem to be like fast sectors for growth for union struggle labor struggles like in china let's learn fucking chinese right now <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like maybe the IWW needs to be learning from the Chinese labor movement very carefully. It's just hard to get information, but they seem to be at the vanguard of class struggle right now. To be honest, as far as I know, they are you know the most advanced. It's just your your cell has to eventually it has to get to the point where it bridges the gap between strikes over wages and work conditions and into a political struggle for political freedom. And, you know, that's kind of the barrier that they're setting up against because of the nature of the state there, especially. Yeah, well, it seems like, you know, the state has to, like, tolerate it up to a certain point just because of, like, the ideology that, you know, underpins the entire regime. But I kind of wonder how they're going to continue to sort of square this circle as China begins to kind of deal with the same sort of decreasing economic growth that any other, you know, advanced, you know, developed capitalist society has to reckon with. You know, like how, how are they going to, What because they're already seem to be in some ways like subtle sig- overtures towards, you know, more liberalization. Like China has cut back on its, you know, surplus steel capacity and sort of like let some of that 
uh, go and you know they obviously over time they've clearly like decreased the control government control over like the commanding heights of the economy uh, to an extent. Like yeah. how how, how fucked. <laughs> yeah, because, how fucked. Because like they're fucked because they had a Stalinist command economy, but and so they try to fix that. They've tried to go capitalist. They've tried to use the market. And what has that has done is it has created economic growth to a certain point, but at the same time, it puts them under the greater contradictions of capitalism. And so they're still subject to the you know the falling rate of profit and the basic you know boom and bust cycle. And so as China becomes more capitalist, those dynamics take over more, and that's going to be it's 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 going to become less of a payoff for them to have this kind of neoliberal policy that they have because workers won't be benefiting from it because the growth will no longer really be coming and you'll just be seeing all kinds of unrest. I think. Well, they're certainly in a cycle of diminishing returns at the moment. Who is it? China. Well, I mean, like I'm saying, like every like the whole global you know economy seems to be in a cycle of diminishing returns. I mean, yeah, but it's notable for China because China was one of the biggest growth sectors in the whole global economy over the past few decades. Right. The, right. To the Absolutely. extent where, when you see those statistics about, oh, there's been such a growth in living standards. If you take out China, it there it, there hasn't been. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, like, yeah, it isn't very impressive how China went from being basically the plaything of imperialist to such a powerful capitalist nation. But now it's going to start facing, like, the problems that all powerful capitalist nations have to face. And, yeah, like what you said, how they square a circle with that, with their whole ideology, is going to be interesting. Because the whole justification of using capitalism was that we were going to build wealth and then share it. And so... When capitalism stops building wealth, how are they going to justify the current course that they're on? I mean, hey, maybe, maybe the tankies are right, and they just, you know, they go full on. They just bring it back down, you know. Tanks come out, red flags fly, and it's, you know, it's, it's back on, you know. They've built up the productive forces, and we're ready to go. It's time. Yep. Is it? Yeah. They, they have like they actually have like a chart at like the central planning headquarters, and like once it, on the marker board, once they hit the certain level, like the means of production are sufficiently developed, and it's time. All I of mean, the all of the multinational corporations that they were letting abuse the the working class there, they go just kidding to now. Yeah, that's kind yeah. of a sneaky dream. Is basically. You know, eventually, like, China is going to, like, go communist once they get rich enough. But the thing is that when you build this bureaucracy in the state around capital accumulation, you get entrenched, class, like, you know, an entrenched bureaucratic interest in the state. And so it would take, I think, some kind of revolution to, you know, basically yeah. make China communist. And I think it's it's going to be difficult, but it's it's a very interesting situation to think about. Yeah. So there, I think, you know, in terms of the future, I think the, there's a lot of hope in China, but there's also a lot that's, because if they had like, let's say like, you know, this, this labor unrest, like translated into like a revolution, there'd pretty much be world war three at that point. Right. Hmm. Uh, probably, question. probably. That's a good question because depending have- on the sort of revolution, of course. Well, we would have a major revolution during a time of mutually assured destruction, like in a nuclear power. I mean, I didn't mean to be like a bummer or whatever. It's just a thought that came to my head. No, no, it's it's just really worth asking because, you know, I I hope for a revolution for the Chinese to overthrow their 
disgusting over overgrown bureaucracy and have a real like communist society and spark the world revolution but how yeah. would that go i mean i guess it all you know it's really on us to get our shit together you know on this side well, of the ocean yeah it's it's that's that's a question yeah. that we all <laughs> i think that's the golden question that everybody wants to know the answer to i mean a chinese revolution in isolation would be uh a problem we would definitely exactly. need to get it together exactly. here as well like it has it would have to be part of an international wave of class struggle you know and that's uh yeah that's uh that goes all the way back to Marx yeah. and uh, the first international exactly why we need a world party it all comes around yeah yeah that's why we need to learn Chinese folks oh dude that's so many characters though I can't I can't I can't handle it I'm still waiting for Duolingo to to come out with it although there's something called Chinesey which I we'll find a way helpful. we'll Chinese. find a way because communication Hopefully, is vital. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, maybe Google Translate will get good enough so we won't have to do any Listen, work. But uh, the world is going to okay, learn Esperanto. So, <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of uh, you know not having our shit together, the Bernie Kratz, Bernie Kratz do not have their shit together. Uh, so this weekend, I sort of watched with some interest, um, a little bit, to see what would happen of with Bernie's kind of big post-election failure push of putting Keith Ellison is in the head of the uh as a chairman of the democratic national committee which you know is pretty moderate demand given the utter you know annihilation and failure of the democrats in the last election but you know that whole thing went tits up and instead they put in uh tom perez who was drafted and essentially backed by obama's people for the very purpose of not having keith ellison being there which it's been interesting kind of watching which you know on some level it's surprising and it isn't because the Democrats suck, but in a way, Bernie Sanders was doing them a favor by throwing them this symbolic bone that wouldn't really have a lot of punch to it uh, that they could use to, you know, throw you know throw a bone to the Bernie base and uh, keep them inside of like the big awful tent that the Democrats have constructed. But that instead, graveyard they, of movements. Yeah, the graveyard of movements. So, but instead, they chucked that away. And I think what's interesting is that like. You know, it it really reveals how just how much of their plan is like it it revealed to me like how much I was right. Like I was more right than even I thought. Because <laughs> they their 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 plan, like their entire existence, is all they have to do is just sit to the left of the Republicans, right? And like the kind of people who are in the Democratic Party are good at one thing, fundraising. So, like, the further to the right that the Democrats go, the more space that they have to go right. And that's good for them because the further right that they go, the more money they can raise. And so anything that makes as fundraisers easier and better is better for them as people and, and for their careers. So they have no – and so the left has nowhere else to go because the Democrats define what the left is. They have literally no incentive to change anything. In fact, they are incentivized to help this process get worse. And that's what occurred to me today. So, yeah, their strategy and, you know, has been, I think, shown quite, you know, we're just going to continue doing what we're doing. And fuck you, you have nowhere else to go. So, you know, too bad. Um, and I guess that was more of a rant than a question, but I don't know if anyone had any thoughts on this. Oh, there's so much to say about that because it's you're right. And I just kind of had a revelation there too. Or not really a revelation, just 
Yeah, that's it's just so correct that it is what the Democrats do because the more right wing the Republicans go, the less left wing the Democrats have to be, and less and the left wing the, the, the Democrats the, are, the more money they can get. So it's literally structurally like built into their party to go more and more right wing. It's a racket, and it's, it's literally just, a racket. It's, it also shows though, like why political parties need to be based on the dues paying of their membership and not fundraising from capitalists and that's i think what separates almost like a, a proletarian party or a labor party from you know just a bourgeois party even if it's a completely degenerated and re, you know uh revisionist labor party it's still at least you know not a fundraising machine for factions of the capitalist class Right. I mean, Tony Blair, like Tony Blair was never as bad as Bill Clinton. I mean, you know, there was definitely like this simpatico relationship between them, but it wasn't the same fucking thing. Right. I mean, then that's like, that's the thing, too. Like in the face of this, like I was just sort of looking at seeing people's response and so many of them were saying, oh, you know, it wasn't that important because it was just a symbolic thing anyway. But, you know, we just the fact that they had to do this shows that we're encountering resistance. So we just need to keep going. Like, I don't see I, I see very few people like really questioning, like the inside outside strategy in like a meaningful way. OK, um, see, we have to talk to the lizard people, to the lizard people. We have to we have to be like, you know, Nikoms for them. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, we have to kind of bring out the hopelessness. We have to force them to address the empirically obvious thing that you need a religious faith to deny. Like we need to inspire that skepticism. And that's of course not the only place we need to be active. And of course it's secondary to being active within the working class, but because of the Spetsy problem of needing people with the technical skills from the educated classes, we need to harvest their despair. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, yeah that's a good way I of mean, putting it. We need we need to drink their tears, but also show no, them we that need their tears taste uh, fighting militants for the working class. Right as well. Right. I mean, some of these people are just too far gone. I think, but there are. But I mean, a lot know, of I, the state department intern class is hopeless. I mean, I think you know you can get people who were sort of maybe educated. I mean, the best thing you could probably help for is get people who are educated in this stuff, but can't actually find a career there and are just sort of declasse. And I mean, yeah, obviously their attempts at administration post-revolution would be kind of amateurish, but you know, it'd probably, I mean, honestly, uh, a communist party in power post-revolution would be amateurish because, you know, you haven't been running shit before. You're not going to do it as well. Somebody's been running shit before, but yeah, I think, um, the left already does have a base amongst intellectuals and D class A people. And I think that, you know, you could fall into the danger of, well, we need to win over support from, you know, the lizard people. So we look, need- we, we, we have support among the losers. I'm sorry. In the petty bourgeois sectors, the people that don't find jobs and fall into the greater yeah. proletariat. We don't have the best of the best. We don't. We don't have the best humanities no, people. Well, I mean, I, I we could definitely use more experts, like logistics experts, engineering experts, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, you're right. I mean, we don't have the best of the best. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we need class traders. We we do. find I don't that. think that requires a specific pitch to the lizard people, though, personally. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there are diamonds in the rough, though. I mean, we gotta have the best yeah. of the best, but I think, like, you know... Honestly, you don't want any of the wonks. You don't want any of, like, the wonks, the people who are, like, policymakers and that sort of thing to be a part of the Those fucking people away from me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. those, pe- those li- lizard people you don't want at all. The vast want, majority like, so- of the political science department. Well, so much, so much of, like, um, well, at least, you know, in terms of, like, people involved in, like, representative aspects of government, like, you know, state houses or the Congress or whatever, those people are just fundraisers. So you really don't need those people for anything. Oh, yeah, I mean, and, you know, like, um, some, like, the whole certain, certain technical complex. Things. Yeah, those, yeah, those people are... Like, the whole, like, like, system of different think tanks and stuff. There's a whole gigantic, like, political class that we could just cut off. But we do yeah, need, I mean, you know... I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we can turn our backs on... Every, everyone who's likely to have encyclopedic knowledge of the actual society we inhabit in terms of their like the laws and regulations or just like the history of or like uh of conflict or logistics or like military <laughs> science I mean, we're really writing off we'd be writing off a lot of people and i understand that as a whole these people are very distasteful but it'd be a fallacy to think that we couldn't find some worthwhile tr- class traders within them and that shouldn't be oh, our it okay, shouldn't well, be me, our main thing. Paint a picture. Like, give me, give me like an example of the kind of people you're talking about. Like what, what sort of like who? Like, give me like not maybe a name, name specifically, but, but what kind of roles or what kind of administrators would would fit this kind of idea of yours? I mean, like logistics would help. Like, okay. first of all, like even just like people that could possibly imagine what what is our what's our goal? Like, is our goal feasible? Because well, look, we're true believers in a sense. You know, we're not totally skeptical about classless society most people have Weberian assumptions about you know a technical society requires this intellectual manual division of labor that will never be overcome and the history of marxism doesn't doesn't make it obvious that that's wrong like i think i see what you're saying we need we need people that can make the basic case again that this isn't a fantasy I, I suppose when you mentioned when you mentioned making an appeal to the to the lizard people, my thoughts immediately went to sort of the ideologically and materially invested uh, sort of Washington D.C. type, you know, progressive think tank or worse sort of person. But perhaps that's not who you're speaking of. I, I'm, ta- I'm I'm talking more generally about. The people that have subjected their personalities to <laughs> bureaucratic rationality in order to fit in with this. Now, I mean, I am talking about that type of person, but not, but not all of them are in positions that completely compromise them. Like, I, I can not, agree with that. Like, if, if we're gonna write off cops, like, like uh, in in the same way that we're writing off lizard people. I, I don't know. Like, oh yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put them in the same category as cops, for example, but. I just don't, I think I just would agree with Grant that you don't really need like a special pitch just for them. I think that we could win over a lot of those people just by pointing out that communism is more than just like workerism, but it's the emancipation of humanity. We have the most progressive platform on all issues regarding everything. I think also they can, we we don't know how to build a party. A lot of them are, able, are are going to be able to see the writing on the wall for the petty bourgeoisie in the in the 21st century, I imagine. You know, especially if there's an ascendant workers' movement. And what if there isn't an ascendant workers' movement? 
I mean, like, then there's uh, then there's no communism. <laughs> then the situation is is tragic, but then we there's can impose. There's no possibility of communism if there's no ascendant workers movement. Yeah, but we have to kind of take our situation as it is, and I I don't know if I don't I don't know if that's true. There has to be some kind of movement of the proletariat that has that has the proletariat's interests and like yeah. is composed of the proletariat. But I don't know if it'll be around work necessarily, and regardless of whether it is, like we can't just shrug our shoulders if union activity doesn't pick up or something. We have to, you know, apply ourselves to the world as it is. Well, I mean, yeah, but at the same time, we can't just give up on unions and give up on the industrial working class. And you no. know, you're right that we need to expand our definition of what class is and almost compare it to kind of this reified idea of class. But at the same time, I, I think that it's... We still need to organize the essential proletariat, like the people that can shut down the society. Yeah, I mean, I agree yeah, with exactly. that. But not but, because they can shut down society, not so much even that, just because they are part of the proletariat. Like, and we want to unite the entire proletariat. It's in their material interest to destroy class society. It's, you know, when we're making appeals to, to officials, I mean, I think that that's, that's a very possible thing to do, but it doesn't, in, it doesn't adhere to their class interests as much that they should want to see capitalism gone and that vests all sorts of interests right. well honestly that's what this is where i think the appeal of justice makes sense is when you're talking to lizard people that are swayed by that kind of thing like <laughs> and that's that's why that comes up and that's why in intellectual circles you know derrida says that justice is an undeconstructible concept. And this is Derrida who's deconstructing everything. Where Marx is like, justice. And it's like one of the first things that he really like grapples with as a nominal phenomenon and how it betrays its content. Yeah, I mean, I think there is this kind of desire for justice and a greater world that really does motivate people. And it motivates people who aren't necessarily proletarians. It's just that we still have to, to win the support of proletarians, regardless. Absolutely. Regardless. We have a uh, comrade locally uh, in CLT who always says that um, lizard people are people too. And uh, <laughs> that's one to grow on. We also have a new segment, Mailbag. We got some mail. What, what's that? Someone really sent us mail? Well, not, not like physical mail, but we got an email. Here's the mail. Uh, never. Okay. Uh, this is from their email is multi-thesis and I'm just going to read it and there's a few questions in it and we can, we can respond to it. It says, hi, Swampside. I like your podcast. Nice to see a rare communist voice in the world and one that I can casually listen to. Since you're doing what this podcast, I have some questions which I would like you to answer, which I ask as a comrade who is interested in discussion. Communists have recognized for years that one of the great progressive things about the development of capitalism has been its continual undermining and destruction of traditional pre-capitalist cultures. We saw this, for example, in Marx's support of Polish independence against Russia. How do we square that with communists and their support for indigenous activists, for example, the anti-DAPL protests against dispossession and the destruction of native lands? What would a communist program have to include to deal with the indigenous question in settler countries like USA, Canada, and Australia, in an internationalist and universalist manner. I'm just going to reread all the questions that are here. How do we avoid framing these issues in terms of nations and their sovereignty, as well as almost prudentist ideas of returning to what was stolen to rightful owners, which deals with these issues on the realm of property? This is particularly relevant to communists in my country, Australia. 
as we have seen how Aboriginal Australians are basically treated as the lowest rung of the proletariat, unemployable, dying of preventable diseases, experiencing violence at the hands of the police, being incarcerated at a higher rate than white people, being an experimental population for welfare management programs before they can be brought possibly to the wider population, being forced into living in the bigger cities and living in poor housing. The anger at the mistreatment of aboriginal teenagers and youth jails and the closure of remote aboriginal towns in the past year or two definitely got people into the streets, but the politics of some leftist and indigenous groups poses some ideas of sovereignty, decolonization, treaty, land rights, etc. as a program or non-program because these ideas are not really well worked out to address the injustice that aboriginal people face. Regards, uh, Stanny. And first of all, thanks for writing us and thank you for listening. So to go back to the questions posed in the middle, what would a communist program have to include to deal with the indigenous question in settler uh, countries in an internationalist and universalist manner? And I guess he asks, how do we avoid framing these issues in terms of nations and sovereignty, as well as prudent ideas of returning to uh, what was stolen to rightful owners, which deals with these issues in the realm of property? So who wants to take that one? I, I suppose I can start. I've been reading uh, a bunch of American Indian movement stuff, actually. And very few of them, um, although, you know, some of them are, are influenced by the Black Panthers and, you know, were like uh, in cities and were, you know, fe feeling the proletarian pressures that have affected a lot of uh, groups. Like um, th there are very few like Marxist Leninists among them. Um, but, the you know, the ones that were there make to me the most compelling versions of like a national liberation thesis like to me like i i'm coming from more of like an internationalist and like left communist background but i i can't really find another way around this and and i know that's not what you want to hear um and i'm sure that's not like a, a position that everybody here shares but yeah when you look at the demands again you have to look at people's demands and what what they want like what they want is their treaty rights to be honored because these agreements have already been made by bourgeois governments and the bourgeois governments will never ever honor them really and this to me seems like like an on the jewish question kind of thing where you have to rights is insufficient but to reject you know land rights and treaty rights in these situations means we're not doing the bare minimum in order to create like a withering away of this historical tension. Yeah, to continue on that, I think it's kind of necessary. I, I don't really know if I would not frame it in terms of nationhood because indigenous Americans, I would say, do are not necessarily tribes or something. They are nations. They are, in, in the modern sense, a nation. And I think if we apply the principle of the equality of nations and revolutionary integrationism rather than kind of forced red colonialism, in a sense where we're trying to integrate, you know, indigenous nations into the greater communist community, but not through force, no, but through a free union based on their agreement. And if they, and essentially, but also supporting working class movements, even, you know, even if they go against that government, you know, to the point of even aiding insurrections against that government, I think. But I think generally, 
the principle is the equality of, of, of nations and the free union of peoples, regardless of national inheritance. And I think that's not a sufficient answer, but I think it's the beginning of the answer. And I think Marxists have to take seriously, uh, if we're ever to promote internationalism as a superior sort of alternative, I think we need to uh, demonstrate that we're capable of taking on the material interests of of uh, indigenous people and and of some of the national liberationists and in ways that don't end up in this sort of repetition of the modern nation state. How do we avoid this? Like, I, I think just a self-determination principle is acceptable, especially with indigenous cultures. And um, yeah, they don't really want to be a part of our fucking society a, a lot of the time. Oh, that's the thing is you're saying they, but the thing is like the indigenous community has tensions of its own. And I don't so, think you can hope, you can't our, hope would be, our hope would be that basically within those communities a proletarian resistance, because a lot of these tribal council leaders are basically like seen as Uncle Tom's by a lot of the younger people who are basically sure. just making deals with the bourgeois state who are basically just like this managerial political caste and they don't really have their interests in mind. So our aim would be try to, to fight against those people and try to, to instill class struggle. Like say, for example, in the United States, a revolution happens and then a bunch of indigenous people form their own like republic. Like I don't think our first instinct should be we're going to crush it and make it into the communist republic or whatever. But what we would do is we would recognize – we could recognize their rights. We could try to grant more – we could try to grant as – much of their of their rights as possible and try to win them over to our side and we could try to kind of help proletarian movements within that region on an internationalist foreign policy well, we'd, we'd want to long term show them that union with uh, a communist society is is in their interests uh it's not a we can't we we aren't going to be duping them we've just got to it's like you said, it's not a homogenous group, and there are plenty of people who of are completely not. capable of seeing that internationalism is in the long-term interests of working people anywhere. And that that doesn't imply that there's going to be a sort of cultural uh, annihilation, necessarily. In the literature, there's a, there's tends to be a, a split in thought between the urban uh, proletariat and like uh, American Indians and American Indian thought on the reservation. There, there's definitely class tensions in a lot of different tribes, and tribes are you know, extremely heterogeneous in terms of how they've made out over the years. Um, you know, to, that's kind of a weird way to put it, considering how screwed a lot of the tribes are. But yeah, I, I, think, I think any attempt to deal with this would have to give them self-determination and for the most part, I think a lot of them would want to have some kind of autonomous government. Like, and I don't think that that's going to be a threat to, you know, a commune state or whatever that is comprised of, you know, a lot of the territories of, of the continent, uh, like of the world, <laughs> of the continents of the yeah. world. Well, like, I don't think the nation won't be abolished immediately. Nations will wither away along with the state. And if, if you think about it and, I think it would be a similar case with indigenous nations that they would, that they would have self-government rights, and we would grant them self-government rights. Even 
even maybe like autonomous territory, but still within the greater workers republic. And we would just we would have to work through cooperation and through economic cooperation, eventually, you know, integrate them into our society. But to do that, we have to prove to them that basically like we will have they will have the same amount of rights. They will be treated like full human beings, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a question of kind of leading by example almost. Well, I think the spirit, yeah. the spirit of the original question too was, you know, how do how do we address these issues, but without you know accidentally like reifying nationalism or playing to you know the idea of like you know nationalism of the oppressed and so on and so forth, or you know decolonization and all that. Yeah. How do we how do we pose like a genuine like you know communist alternative to that kind of rhetoric? Yeah. Our like, programs have to address the specific oppressions of these people from not being able to operate in their own language and in documents to uh, stopping pipelines and all all sorts of things along those lines as well. Well, yeah, I think there's also just like basic like standards of living problems that you know need to be addressed as well. I think I mean I wish I knew a little bit more about kind of I guess like the economies of like reservation life and kind of to what extent of like how much economic development have like these uh you know like fit, you know autonomy or these you know tribal federations been subjected to like to what extent I don't know how analogous their situation is like the peasant question or yeah there's like sort of an underlying question if we're going to give these people back their land per se and like by honoring treaties and and such how how are we going to deal with the white populations that are going to probably still want to live on those lands? Well, a lot of the lands going to be are, like a lot of the lands that are disputed aren't like residential territories; they're like mineral deposits. I I, I know I know I, I that's a decent point, but like when we're specifically talking about like for example like the native peoples of Hawaii, like their their lands yeah, are basically. Right. Their lands are populated by mostly white people and like other races, so to give them back their lands would mean that they would have like they would sort of have a native dictatorship of their own, and they would have to suppress the rights of the other peoples that are living on those lands. Well, I think we would have to make sure we're not supporting an ethno state, but that's not the only possible outcome. I think I think that's where self-determination is problematic is where it comes yeah. into supporting ethno states. Yeah. And I think I think self-determination should not be the principle. I think equality of nations should be the people. Equality yeah. of peoples across the world. All people are no one person is inherently better than another because of their nation, nationality, and therefore has a right to tell that person how to live. There's no yeah. inherent right like that. I was specifically bringing up, I wasn't advocating for an ethno state, obviously. I was oh, bringing of it up course. As a, I didn't think so, no. Yeah, I was bringing up specifically the example of the Hawaiian peoples as sort yeah. of a problem. Yeah, and we've, we've talked about nationalism and the, the threat of that with each other before, for sure. Yeah, Hawaii is particularly difficult, actually. I mean, that's, that's a, quite a good question. Um, there are a couple of territories in Hawaii that are, you know, reserved for in, indigenous people. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure ideally they would like to have their islands back and you can't have like a population transfer or endorse second class citizenship. There would have to be a communist answer to this. And it's not clear that a national liberation framework does that in the case of Hawaii. But I think 
I don't know, when we're thinking about the mainland, um, First Nations in Canada and indigenous, indigenous people in the United States, that it's less problematic. Maybe, maybe our out is we say that, you know, the bourgeois government has to honor the treaties, but once it's red, red America, you know, it's a different game. I don't know. Yeah, that, I mean, seem, I, I that really, seems cheap, though. Honestly. I mean, I don't think the treaties are really what is important. I think it's the dignity and the ability to live on your land without having a pipeline through it. I think it's more basic. And I think the kind of the use of treaties in these struggles is more of a weapon than like, because there's been so many different treaties made oh, by yeah. indigenous people. And so you can pick and choose which ones you want to be basically recognized. And so I see the treaties as more of just kind of a tool in these struggles. They're an into kind of like a sacred rule of law thing. Yeah. So it's, well, there's a lot of contradictory stuff in here. I'm, I'm thinking maybe we could have like their sort of representation, individual representation within the government, like specifically have like committees on like dealing with their issues, like committees made up of members of their community dealing with those issues and that sort of thing within like a, a North American some sort of special representation yeah special representation the thing is is that we have like an evil like version of this (laughs) in the Bureau of Indian Affairs Um, and so this is like it's a it is a good idea and maybe if you could implement it in kind of like Yugoslavia kind of way I I don't know like maybe it could be implemented in a believable way but all these proposals like all these regular like internationalist enlightenment proposals have been tainted by li- the liberal implementation to the communities that we're talking about. This is difficult. I'm, like I'm not, I'm not generally for national, like, like liberation solutions to everything. Like I think the revolutionary integrationist model is, is for, for the majority of the, you know, oppressed like and racialized peoples in the, in the proletariat. That would be the solution. It would also be consistent with their demands, politically speaking. Well, yeah, and I also I also feel like you know the pro the dictatorship of the proletariat and the various councils and you know structures that compromise the post capitalist communist world. You know that we're not going to be building the monument to the heroic proletarian struggle on top of Indian burial grounds. You know what I mean? Like it's not going to be like a situation yeah. under capitalism where you know they're building where you have like labor like writing the government telling them to allow them to build these pipelines so that the union people can have jobs building the pipelines. Like, I don't yeah. think there's going to be those same kind of, of tensions under communism because you'll actually have more of a, you know, you'll actually have actual representation and you'll have a more of a metabolism between man and nature by which, you know, you're actually responsibly utilizing resources in the earth in a way that doesn't just kind of fuck people over and pave over people's yeah. lives. I think we could really win a lot of the indigenous people over through revolutionary integrationism if we did it in a way that wasn't, you know, white saviorist and condescending and stupid, you know. I think it is a possibility, but we still it will it will require making concessions, I think at some point. It, it requires compromise and and showing that that revolutionary integrationism isn't necessarily saying, you know, you have to take your culture and, and get rid of it entirely and all of that as well. You know, there, there has to be some, there's going to be a lot of trust building, but I, I, I have to agree exactly. that I think it's possible. It has to be based on, you know, letting people have their national and cultural rights and recognize that, that they are, there is a real national oppression that needs to be addressed. And I think if 
that's the approach we should take. And if secession does happen, it's not good per se, but it is, you know, our first reaction shouldn't be just to send in the tanks. Yeah, and, and this is this gets very messy when you realize that a lot of the indigenous lands have you know important mineral deposits, including uranium. And again, if you're really serious about stopping climate change, a lot of the solutions involve uh, nuclear power, lots of nuclear power. So it gets even messier. So I hope that answered your question, but I doubt it. But uh, you know, we we made we made a go of it. We can at least uh, be setting some is, of the groundwork. Yeah, Thanks the for your question. Is, it's very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> at, at least we're yeah, not this like, is like an episode in and of itself. Yeah. At least we're not like the Platypus Society trying to explain how the Manifest Destiny was actually a really great and liberal oh my enlightenment God. sort of yeah. thing. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of the Marxism that we're dealing with. Like, I was reading uh, this guy. Uh, he's an artist, Jimmy Durham, and he's he's known for being an artist, but he was a member of AIM, American Indian Movement, and he's the Marxist-Leninist guy I was talking about. He, he wrote um, in 1974 that there's he can think of like about a dozen American Indian um, Marxist-Leninists, which is kind of amazing. Like, and, and how the reason, and he writes this really good paper called American Indian Culture, um, where he describes the missionary the kind of missionary style interactions that um, the American Indian community had had with uh, Marxists during the new left. And, you know, if you think about Maoists, which is a dominant tendency, first of all, okay, that's an obvious, that, that's, that makes a lot of sense. But then, you know, even when I'm, I'm reading Lars Lee and the kind of defense of Lenin is that Lenin sees things along the lines that Kautsky does. It's not that he's worried about the workers. He's just sort of like a missionary spreading the good news. Yeah, you know, like there's a sort of missionary style thing that Marxism has. And it's sort of, you know, it's part of its part of its its traditional strategy. And it's one of the things that we've been struggling with. It's one of the targets that the ultra left likes to make fun of the left for is for these, you know, kind of out outmoded Christian appeals that you know the significance of which becomes ever more magnified when dealing with indigenous uh, indigenous communities that's it for this week next week we will be discussing the first half of state and revolution by vladimir lenin if you want to write to us you can send us an email at swampsidechats at gmail.com if you want to support the show leave us a good review on iTunes. So, until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. Fuck.